of the pastors here at Overlake. I work with student ministries. I hang out with these fun people every week. It's so great. Um, and I have to say that I love when teenagers lead us in worship. It's something so cool because I think a lot of people say the church is dying. And when I see them leading us in worship, I'm reminded that the future of the church is good. We're in good hands. We're going to a good place. So I'm excited to do that, celebrate with you guys in that way. You guys, today is Super Bowl Sunday. No? I don't know. It's kind of a bummer. The Seahawks are not here playing today. Instead, they're resting somewhere, maybe lounging by a pool. But unfortunately, none of them will be working today. Some of you might be wondering, have any of them been working all season? I don't know. Is that too soon? Does that feel... I don't know. Anyway, today, I, I don't know, what are we going to do? We're going to cheer on some commercials. Um, cheer on Lady Gaga. She is. We got one. We got one Lady Gaga fan. Um, we are going to cheer on the refs, maybe. Maybe the Falcons. Okay. So we're all agreeing as long as it's not the Patriots, we're happy, right? That's why we're agreeing, right? Definitely. One thing I've noticed about sports teams is um, they kind of have this pattern to their life. They have a rhythm to their life. It's like the calendar is their guide. It, whatever season is, we know what they're up to. We know whether or not it's their play season, whether it's their rest season, or whether it's their work season. Professional athletes, you get it. You get when their seasons are. For us, for myself, um, I won't speak for you, but I'm not a professional athlete, so the calendar doesn't guide me as much. But we also have developed some rhythms, some patterns to how we live. Unfortunately, um, I, I would make an argument that the, the society we live in, the Western culture that we live in, has got us out of whack. Our rhythm for life and how we should be living and at what pace we should be living, I feel like is totally out of sync and so what I want to do is I want to spend this morning kind of talking about the rhythms of our life, whether that's us as an individual or a family or even this church community. What is the rhythm of our life? Ecclesiastes 3.1 says this, for everything there is a season, a time for every activity under heaven. This was written by Solomon, who was said to be the wisest man that ever lived, and he's saying there is a time for everything, every activity, everything we need to get done. There is a time for it. So life is made up of years and weeks and days. And I think in order for us to create some healthy rhythms in our lives for ourselves and for our families and for our church, we have to be really intentional with how we use our time. The very rhythm of our life, the everyday life, is meant to be a liturgical or worshipful practice in which we look to God and his ordained and grace-filled patterns that he has given us of work, rest, and play. So we're going to take a little time to examine these areas of work, rest, and play, and we're going to start backwards. So let's dive into this idea of rest and if you're following along in your outline, you can fill it in. It says, rest is both an opportunity and an obligation. Ecclesiastes 3.6 says this, there's a time to search and a time to quit searching. But see, our Western way of doing life has built around producing and consuming, and we're always searching for what's next. We're always running. We're busier than we've ever been before. 
In fact, I noticed that when someone asks me, how are you doing, my response every time without even thinking is, good, but busy, every time. I have yet to ever answer somebody when they say, how are you doing? I am so well rested, and let me tell you about my sleep. It is, ugh, so good. I've never said that. It's always busy because I think our society values busy because busy equals important. Busy equals I am significant. I have something to offer. I am wanted and I'm needed. But I want to challenge that statement. Does busy really define who we are? Henry Nouwen says this, aren't you like me hoping that some person, thing, or event will come along to give you that final feeling of inner well-being you desire? Don't you often hope, may this book, idea, course, trip, job, country, or relationship fulfill my deepest desire? But as long as you are waiting for that mysterious moment, you will go on running helter-skelter, always anxious, always restless, always lustful and angry, never fully satisfied. You know that this is the compulsiveness that keeps us going and busy, but at the same time makes us wonder whether we are getting anywhere in the long run. This is the way to spiritual exhaustion and burnout. This is the way to spiritual death. People are more stressed out, more anxious than they've ever been. I see it in adults, I see it in my friends, but I see it so much in our students. They're saying that teenagers are more depressed, more anxious than they have ever been. And that is deeply connected to the pace of life we push them to. We work, we have these routines of work with our families, we have sports and bands and extra activities, all to help us have a better life, make us better people, but what is it really doing? burning us out. And rest is the breaking of the cycle of production and consumption. Walter Brueggemann says this, in our own contemporary context of the rat race of anxiety, the celebration of the Sabbath is an act of both resistance and alternative. It is a resistance because it is a visible insistence that our lives are not defined by the production and consumption of commodity goods. Rest is an opportunity to slow down, to connect with God, to connect with others, to make sure that you and I, we're not defining our worth by what we do or what we own, but simply in who created us. In Genesis, we see that God says, I've made man and woman in my image. We are image bearers of God. And he shows us a pattern by practicing a pattern. God practices a rhythm to his life and shows us to do the same. In Genesis 2-2, it says, on the seventh day, God had finished his work of creation, so he rested from all his work. God rested. So we, too, should rest. Rest is an opportunity that our bodies need. Our body needs to slow down and recover from our work. Rest is an opportunity to connect with God, to remind ourselves you are the only source of my worth and value. So rest is an opportunity, but we need to understand this too. Rest is actually an obligation. When God gave Moses the Ten Commandments in there is Exodus 28 through 11, and this is what it says, remember to observe the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. You have six days each week for your ordinary work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath day of rest dedicated to the Lord your God. 
On that day, no one in your household may do any work. That includes your sons and your daughters. I got you. Your male and female servants, your livestock, and any foreigners living among you. For in six days the Lord made the heavens, the earth, the sea, and everything in them. But on the seventh day he rested. This is why the Lord blessed the Sabbath and set it apart as holy. See, our compassionate, loving Father, he wants us to rest. He says, look, I'm giving you, I'm showing you how to do it, and now I'm commanding you, rest, rest. A rabbi named Abraham Joshua Heschel says this, in the language of the Bible, the world was brought into being in the six days of creation, yet its survival depends on the holiness of the seventh day. See, as individuals, we need to create space in our lives to rest, to slow down, take a Sabbath, reset yourself. Remember that your worth is not defined by your job, by your titles, by the labels you have, but it is solely based on who God has called you. So find a day. Allow yourself some time. Don't, there's no guilt in resting because it's an opportunity and it's an obligation and it doesn't have to be Sunday, but find some time to rest. And as a family, can I just tell you that rest for your family is so important to take some time as a family and create a space where you can rest together. In our house, we have a tradition called the McQueen Skip Day. And what this is, is this is a day where we pull our kids out of school, and I look at my kids, and I want them to understand you are not defined by how well you do in school. You are defined because you are my kid. And so we rest together, and we stay in our pajamas, we watch movies, and we have breakfast three times a day because it's seriously the easiest meal to make. But that's what we do. We rest together as a family. And I want you to know that Overlake is committed to rest. And so on Fridays, we, we do our best to close the doors here so that teams can take a time to rest. Our life groups, our calendar of ministry has this ebb and flow that allows for rest. So from this practice of rest, we now move to the practice of play. And play is this, participation in the enjoyment of, world, of the world. Ecclesiastes 3, 4 says this, a time to cry, a time to laugh, a time to grieve, and a time to dance. And I want you to check out this video because I think this baby has this figured out. How great is that? The baby gets it. Like, she does it all in one minute. Like, she's grieving, she's happy, dancing, she doesn't know. She's all over the place. It's the best. Unfortunately, I think many people see the church as a place of no fun, no laughing, no dancing. H.L. Mencken, an American journalist famous from the 1900s, once said that Puritans, and this is referring to like a serious-minded Christian, he said, people, they are people who have a deep, forbidding fear that somebody, somewhere, might be having a good time. <laughs> and uh, philosopher Friedrich Nietzsche once observed that Christians have no joy. He said that had he ever met a God who would be willing, who was the God who danced, he might be interested. Unfortunately, he never located that God. 
And yet, perhaps the clearest support of the theology of play is the scriptures over and over inviting us to dance. What a pure celebration of play. And the wisdom of Ecclesiastes, he's saying, listen, there's an affirmation for this activity. There is to be laughing and there is to be dancing. Look at the life of Jesus. Man, he was always at a celebration. He was at weddings, at meals. He was, he was always talking about the kingdom of God being this huge feast, a party, a father who would throw the biggest party ever for a son, one son who returned. But it's interesting, too, that Jesus was also then criticized for having too much fun. Right? The Pharisees, they said, the son of, uh, they, they criticized him for having too much fun, and this is what Jesus said. He said, the son of man came eating, eating and drinking, and you say, here is a glutton and a drunkard and a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Man, Jesus was having so much fun. They were like, he's a glutton. That's crazy. we got to have more fun. And listen, play isn't forgetting that the world is in pain. It's not turning a blind eye to suffering. It's about creating space in your life that says, look it, even in the midst of pain, there is so much great beauty and joy, and this life is a gift. God created the earth, and he said, it is good. In Colossians, it says that God takes pleasure in the earth, and he's inviting us to take pleasure, to enjoy it, to be amazed. I think every time I take a breath, that's amazing. That's, let's play, let's have fun. And it's not just the Bible that's encouraging that. I mean, studies everywhere are showing us that play is good for us, that it helps our body to function, to fight off sicknesses, our blood flow. We sleep better at night. Play is good for us. There's a study that shows that teenagers who play and laugh more do better in school because it rewires their brain. When I was in the process of adopting our daughter, we, we learned that grief gets stuck in your bones and your muscles. And they tell us that one of the best things to do is to get your daughter to dance and to jump because it begins to release all that tension from your body. God has created us to play. So ask yourself, what, what are you doing? How, how are you building space in your life for playing? Josh, my husband, he loves surfing, and he'll go anywhere. He'll, he surfs here, and that is crazy. He'll surf in December, and it is freezing, and he'll wear this really thick wetsuit where you only see, like, this much of him. Like, you barely see him, but he loves it. And for him, when he gets out there, he's, I'm connecting with God. I'm enjoying the creator of the world. You can literally see when he comes back in that he is a different person because he's connected with our creator God. So what is that for you? And as a family, we've got to learn to play together, to laugh together. And it doesn't have to be expensive. It doesn't have to be a fancy trip. Man, in our family, when we are like in the midst of chaos and we don't have money, we play a quick game of sardines. And we turn off all the lights in our house. And one person hides somewhere very sneakily. And then one at a time, they try to find us. And we're hiding and playing sardines in our house. And we're laughing. There's always one kid that can't find us, and it's the greatest. Because they're like, I'm scared. You know, like, come out. And so then you have to do the, like, subtle <coughs> to see if they can find you. It's the greatest. We have so much fun. We love having fun together. We scare each other. My daughter lives on jump scares. She is her favorite thing. If you ever came to my house, just be prepared. She's going to try to scare you. That's her deal. And I have learned to fake it. Oh, that you didn't get me that time. And I'm like dying. 
inside because she got me so good, you know? Like, we just like to have fun. We went sledding recently because we are like, we got to get to real snow because whatever's happening here is not doing the trick for us. So we went sledding, and we were having so much fun. We were, like, bearing each other, having snowball fights, drinking hot cocoa in the snow. We were just having a blast, and we were sledding, and Josh and I decided we were going to go on a sled together, which turns out I know this, like, you smarter people know that, like, the more people wait faster you go, but I didn't really register when I got on with Mazda, so we get on together, and we are, like, cruising. We hit a bump, and we totally jump, and it, like, bumps me down, so I, like, kind of come a little bit further, and my leg is off, and it's just shooting snow into our faces, and we're just laughing, having the best time, and our kids are down there, and they're like, you guys are so weird, but that was so funny, and we're just having a blast. Families need to have fun together. We need to learn to play together. As a church, we value laughter. Man, we don't take ourselves too seriously around here. We take Jesus very seriously, but not ourselves. Life groups create time to play together. In student ministries, man, fun is what we want to do. That We love having fun. In fact, yesterday we hung out with 50, 45 to 50 sixth graders, and we like spent the day at Family Fun Center. We came back and played Shark and Meadows, and I got to be a T-Rex, which is the greatest thing ever, and to try to capture people. It was awesome. But we're just, we just believe that fun and laughter and play, not only does it make their brains ready to learn, but it, it tears down the walls that says Jesus isn't interesting, he's, not, he's boring, he's not relevant. And we're just committed to having fun. We're so committed here over like to having fun, we've put together block party kits. Like, you want to throw a party? Let us give you the supplies. Super Bowl party. If you're having a Super Bowl party with your neighbors, we have kits for you. We want you to have fun, to have a good time. We need it. And I'll say this, that both rest and play are essential because the next part is a big one. The next part of our rhythm is work. And work, is, it's never done, right? It's never finished. There's always more to do. And as we begin to unpack this, I do want to offer this clarity that when we talk about work this morning, we're not talking about your vocation or your job. We're talking about a different kind of work. And this is the work which is a commitment to see kingdom come to earth. Ecclesiastes says multiple times, it says a time to plant, a time to harvest, a time to tear, and a time to mend. See, the invitation from Jesus is to be a co-laborer in the work of the kingdom. He said, the harvest is ready, but the workers are few. See, he taught us, he told us over and over, this is what the kingdom of God looks like. And he said, be sure to pray for it, but also be sure to participate in it. And there are two types of work I want to focus on this morning. The first one is this, it's called reconciliation work. And that's the work of reconciling ourselves and others to God and then to each other. Paul explains it this way in 2 Corinthians all this is from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation, that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against him. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. 
a pastor, a friend from another church in the area, a few, a few years ago, he did this little study, and it was based on Barna Group's research. And then what he did is he called a bunch of his, he called a lot of the local churches in the area and asked them, how many teenagers do you have currently attending your church? And he was alarmed to find out how low the number was. And so what he did, he added some numbers, put it all together, and he he wanted to be optimistic, so he added a percentage or two to the numbers. Maybe the people weren't counting as many as they thought. And what he did is, he, the, it's mind-blowing. So these, this is the percentage of students in our community who are connected to a church and hearing about the good news of Jesus. His study showed that only 8 to 10% of the teenagers in our community have a connection to the church. That means that 90 to 92% of the teenagers in our area have no idea that church is a place they belong and that there is a God who loves them deeply. So let me break that down for you. Let me give you a little bit more numbers. So in our student ministries, we have a lot of school districts represented, but I want to focus on two, Lake Washington and North Shore, because those are our biggest school districts. So in those school districts alone, there are 22,000 middle school and high school students. 22,000. And if his statistics, if his numbers are right, then that means that there are 19,000 teenagers who live in our community, who live in our neighborhoods, who are right next to us, who have no idea that the church has a, something for them, that Jesus wants to reconcile with them. See, I love what we do in student ministries, but our work is far from done. And our hope, we hope that every student in our community knows that there is a God who is so crazy about them. And that's going to take, so, that's going to take a huge workforce. And so that's going to need, we're going to have to partner with churches that we, we didn't in the past. We're going we're gonna to need more adult leaders, more adult volunteers to show up who are willing to show up on Sundays and Wednesdays and look a teenager in the eye and say, you matter. You matter to God and you matter to me. The work is far from done. The reconciliation work, we are, Jesus says, listen, I'm committing this whole entire message that I want to be reconciled to the world to you. That's our work. The second type of work is the restorative work. And the restorative work is finding the things in this world that are broken and saying, look, we're going to work towards the restoration of them, to the wholeness of them. And restoration work, it's a partnership with God because we understand, look, the work is never going to be complete, but it is not a reason for us to not engage there's so many clear calls to it in Scripture that we are to be engaging with this broken world. Isaiah 58, 12 says this, says this, Some of you will rebuild the, de the deserted ruins of your cities. Then you will be known as a rebuilder of walls and a restorer of homes. James 2, 15 through 16 says this, Suppose you see a brother or a sister who has no food or clothing, and you say goodbye and have a good day, stay warm and eat well. But then you don't give that person any food or clothing. What good does that do? See, there's this clear call constantly in Scripture of like, there's something broken, let's restore it. There's someone hungry, let's feed them. There's something that is not right in the world, let's engage. Shane Claiborne says this over and over when I ask God why all of these injustices are allowed to exist in the world. 
I can feel the spirit whisper to me, you tell me why we allow this to happen. You are my body, my hands, my feet. Shane says this, when we ask God to move a mountain, God often hands us a shovel. Hands us a shovel. What role will we play? So here's what I want to do this morning. I want to unpack the mountain a little bit. What is this in our world? And here's when I throw, I'm going to throw out a lot of numbers. And what I'd love for you to do is maybe just listen. Maybe a number catches your attention. Maybe you begin to sense that God might want you to do something about that number. So let's, let's dive in. There are more slaves in the world today than there have ever been in history. There are 27 million wide, 60,000 in the United States alone. Seattle is the second largest entry point, point for slaves in the U.S. The statistics around physical and sexual violence are hard to even comprehend. One in three girls and one in five boys will experience some kind of violence by the time they are 25. One in three. One in five. In King County, there are estimated to be over 1,300 kids in foster care. They say that 25% of the kids who age out of the foster care system end up homeless. There are 65.3 million people who have been forcibly displaced worldwide. 21.3 million refugees, half of whom are under the age of 18. This is the largest refugee crisis since World War II. Did you know that every January, in, uh, there's an evening in King County where volunteers and city officials, they walk around the, the town at night to count the number of people who are sleeping without shelter. And last January, in King County alone, the coldest month here, there was 4,505 children of God sleeping outside. 4,505 homeless with no shelter. And Seattle Times recently reported that in Washington State, the number of homeless students, middle, middle school and high school students, has climbed to 40 thousand people. See, I could go on, on all day, issue after issue of brokenness in this world, but the reality is this. The mountain is big. There is work to be done. And here, I want to just make this a little personal, that based on just these sheer numbers, that means it's very likely that you and I every day interact with someone who's experienced brokenness. Every day we encounter someone. And we believe in a God who has promised that he will make everything right. He will restore everything in this world. That's the God that we follow. But he has also extended that invitation to us. He's asked us to be a part. See, there's plenty of work to be done. And this work is going to require all of us. It's going to require every kid, every teenager, every adult to pick up a shovel See, as an individual, I want to ask you, I want to encourage you to kind of see the world with new eyes. I think it's easy to see all the brokenness and kind of shut down, get sad and mad and just stuck. But can I encourage you to see what would be the potential if we worked together, if we came together and said, listen, we can restore this. We can rebuild this. 
Maybe it starts with going on a mission trip. Maybe it starts by jumping in on Sunday mornings with us in student ministries and saying, listen, I I think I might be able to be around some crazy teenagers. Like, jump in. Don't stand back. As a family, I want to encourage you to serve together as a family. My friend Erica, um, she works, she gets her whole family. She has a seventh grade boy and a fifth grade boy. And they together as a family, they serve, they prep, and they prepare a dinner on Monday night for our safe parking guests. It's called a community dinner. And they get in there and they serve dinner. A family together doing it. Because imagine if we teach our children, listen, you have the potential to right the wrong in this world. You have the potential to change the world. What a powerful thing that could happen. And I'm thrilled to tell you that one of my favorite things about Overlake is that we have a a commitment to reconciliation and a, a commitment to restoration. You will find Overlake in the messiest and the darkest places because we're committed to pointing people to Jesus through our words of reconciliation and our actions of restoration. I want to close with a passage from Ephesians. Paul says this, be very careful then how you live, not as unwise, but as wise, making the most of every opportunity because the days are evil. The work to be done is overwhelming at times. There is a huge mountain, but Paul is saying this, live wise, live wise, make the most of every opportunity that comes because the mountain of brokenness is big, But as followers of Jesus, we believe that we can live our lives in such a way that we can give all the glory to God and we can begin to see him restore and make things new. The kingdom can come now. And that's a commitment to us using our time well. And here's what I've seen. I've seen those who rest and play. And they don't work. And they miss out on this opportunity to, do, to be a part of what God is doing. They miss out on an opportunity in partnering with Jesus. And then I've also seen those who, who work and they don't rest and play. And they just don't make it that long. So the call is, how can we as individuals, how can we as families, how can we as a church pursue this rhythm of work, play, and rest? that together we might make the most of every opportunity, like Paul says, that we might make the most of it as healthy, joy-filled, committed workers to God's kingdom. Would you join me in doing that? Let's pray. God, we thank you so much for who you are, that you are a compassionate, loving Father who sees us and knows us and loves us. God, you see every heart in this room, and you know You know those of us who are weary, and we're just so tired. God, would we rest? And God, do you know the hearts in here that are without joy and who are just so stuck, maybe, God, in their pain and their brokenness? And they need to connect to you and your your creation And God, I I pray for those in the room whose hearts are maybe, you know, aware that they're not participating in the work, that they're not picking up a shovel. God, would you move them to action? 
God, we, would we be a church that is committed to, to, to working, to seeing your kingdom come, but would we be also a church that's committed to resting and, and, and connection with you and to laughter and joy? God, may we be a church that says to the, to the messages all around us about how to live our lives that we are instead choosing your way. We're, we're choosing your, your rhythm for our life, God. God, we thank you that when we seek you, we find you. When we look for you, you're, you're there. You're never far. In Jesus' name, amen. Mm-hmm.